You're listening to ABS in Mind, a bi-weekly podcast bringing you the latest buzz from the asset-backed markets. Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. This is ABS in Mind, and I'm your host for this episode, Larissa Patton. Today, we're going to start off with a chat about ESG investing, what it is, why is it growing, and where is it going. We're joined by Sharadia Dasgupta, the ESG advisor for Flat Rock Global, here to give us an overview of the ESG space. I'm also pleased to have with us here today, Maura Sadovi, associate editor and CMBS reporter on our Detwar ABS team, here to give us an update on the CMBS space because it feels like we need one almost daily right now. But as I said, we'll start with helping to navigate the ESG space. Sharadia, thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you very much for having me, Arisa. Great. So ESG has been a growing topic of conversation and an area of focus for investors, but it can still mean different things to different assets and investors. So when we talk about ESG, environmental, social, and governance, from an investment standpoint, what is it? How is it defined? And then if you can give us an idea of what's going on in the industry at large. Absolutely. ESG investing is the process by which environmental, social, and governance factors that have material impact on a company's financial performance, but is not typically captured in financial statements, are used to complement traditional research techniques and investment analysis. So in terms of implementation, ESG integration has two applications. One is in risk management, and the other is the potential of long-term outperformance generation. For example, at FlatRock, we have developed an explicit ESG policy on how the investment team evaluates the material ESG factors of an investment to inform the credit analysis. We believe that ESG factors are integral to credit analysis from a sound risk management perspective. The investment team looks at SASB. SASB is Sustainable Accounting Standards Board's industry-specific framework, among other external metrics for guidance on which material extra financial factors to incorporate into the underwriting. These external metrics are then supplemented by in-house ESG questionnaire and checklist items on a case-by-case basis to assess ESG-related issues and risks from a company, from a sector, and from a geography standpoint. Additionally, as a business development company, Flatrock is also required to offer management assistance to portfolio companies And in this role, FlatRock encourages its investments to focus on improving ESG outcomes and or addressing ESG-related risks and opportunities. Now, to answer your question on what's happening in the space, a lot. (laughs) You know, there has been a steady growth in ESG and impact investing over the last decade or so. But in the last few years, there has been an accelerated growth in the interest. Um, there are many factors for that, but I would reckon that this this acceleration has happened against the backdrop of extreme weather events becoming, you know, regular. Um, the drive, the global concerted drive to renewable energy consumption, which brings with it issues of stranded assets and asset devaluation also the growing conversations around risks 
that are inherent in secular forces but are difficult to model like global warming, growing income inequalities. All of these factors combined have made the interest in sustainable investing reach a fever pitch. And how does all of this convert into growth in assets? Um, according to Morningstar, estimated net flows into U.S. open-end and exchange-traded sustainable funds totaled $20.6 billion in 2019. That's almost four times the net flows in 2018. Also, can, you, can you tell uh, us a little bit sure. about what you're, what you're investing in? Uh, like what kind of assets are in all these funds? Like wh where does the money go? So the money goes into, it, there is no one uniform uh, way of, of capital allocation with ESG lens. So there are various asset managers have various um, ways of examining what their ESG thesis is. So for example, it could be that all all investments are are examined through an ESG lens and are rated. So if there is if there are high risk, high environmental risk investments in the portfolio, then they, those are red flagged and are excluded. Or you know they are not uh, they are at a stage where the where the asset manager would like to engage with the leadership and management to improve those ESG risks. So again, there is not one way. So that's that's on the ESG front. If you are asking about impact investing, so impact investing sits adjacent to ESG investing. And the difference is that there is a greater degree of intentionality, which means that there is a greater degree of interest in contributing to solutions. So for those, those that the capital that is earmarked as impact investing is directly going towards developing solutions that are addressing, say, climate risk, or that are providing low-cost sanitation products for low-income women in in developing and frontier economies. It could go towards um, developing financial inclusion products for women in South Asia. So again, impact investing. Can be it means a range can have, can include a range of strategies and can include a range of topics and issues that an investor and a manager together decides to address. Yeah, that's interesting. That's uh, it's kind of been described to me where you know the environmental portion of it is very clear cut, but that's very different than if you're looking to invest in women-led businesses, for example. Whereas the social part is more like the wild west right now. Um. Yes, and I like to kind of, you know, framing is important. So I kind of like to frame it as ESG integration, which is just fundamental risk analysis and fundamental investment analysis with the benefit of taking into account E, S, and G factors that have a proven demonstrable impact on a company's, you know, revenue, on a company's cost, on a company's cost of capital on companies, assets, liabilities. So that's the ESG integration part. And the impact investing is more proactively contributing to solutions to address some of the environmental, social, and government challenges. So it's like I said, it's just a, you know, the degree of intentionality. And again, all capital cannot be impact investing, but ESG mm -hmm. application or ESG integration can happen across almost the entire pool of capital and across strategy, uh, strategies and across life stages. 
So, mm-hmm. so yeah. And also just, you know, I would be remiss if I do not, um, since we are talking of what's happening in the space, I would be remiss if I do not mention the moral leadership that, um, that has been demonstrated by some of the large institutional investors, including global asset owners like Japan Pension Fund and CalPERS. Both of these pension, pension funds have made significant allocations to ESG strategies and also especially these two, have gone to the extent of saying that if you are not evaluating ESG risks, then you are actually not fulfilling your fiduciary duties. So so that's, you know, institutional investors and their demand of having greater ESG risk uh, evaluation is a big factor that is contributing to this growth in, in overall sustainable investing. That's interesting. That that kind of feeds into my next question because we look at these leaders in the space that are allocating more towards uh, this this ESG and impact investing space. What do you say to investors um, that are looking at the space and they're interested in it, but they are still interested in yield and return? Thank you for that question. So I would I would tell them that ESG is not anti yield. To the contrary, it is it is used in, in investment analysis to drive better risk mitigation and to drive sustainable longer term value creation. So, you know, even for example, what we are doing at FlatRock, we are integrating ESG because it adds incremental information to the credit analysis and sometimes helps us uncover risks and opportunities that have ramifications for the company's credit worthiness and credit spread. It doesn't subtract from our commitment to yield and capital preservation. Mm-hmm. So, which is, you know, the perfect segue to your question about ESG and risk management broadly. Mm-hmm. So, some ESG factors, especially on the governance front, factors like board independence, factors like audit practices, have long been examined by analysts. You know, now with ESG becoming central, it is being reframed as reframed as ESG. And therefore, there is greater discipline around that diligence. However, now there are newer issues that are being di- that are being diligenced: climate change, biodiversity, energy management, water management, labor practices, employee engagement, product responsibility, data security policies. All of these have direct and sometimes indirect impact on a company's performance. It can affect, uh, you know, a company's litigation costs. It could en- affect a company's reputation. And all of these, again, have implications, like I was saying earlier, on a company's revenue, cost, cost of capital, et cetera. So all of these E, S, and G factors are now necessary consideration for a complete sound risk analysis. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've talked about before, and you had mentioned that it's a growing space and there's a lot going on in it. And, you know, looking, it's still evolving. So looking out at the landscape, what is this sector eventually going to look like or what would you like it to look like? I know we, <laughs> we talked about regulation, we've talked about standardization, you know, ESG, even just from our conversation, anyone listening can tell it's a, it's a vast, broad space. Right. So as, you, as ESG grows, there will certainly be more regulation. So far, Europe has been at the forefront of ESG, ESG regulations. That's starting to change. Just last week, the SEC made a request for public comment wherein it is scrutinizing how sustainable funds live up to their names. 
SEC's proposed change to Regulation SK is intended to simplify issuers reporting on material risk factors. What is interesting in that is there specifically the proposed amendment to item 101 would include human capital resources as a disclosure topic, thereby you know, in effect, it means that the SEC is saying that human capital management, which is an integral part of the S of SEG, is a material risk factor disclosure. Mm-hmm. Secondly, you know, as you know, with any maturing marketplace, there will be greater scrutiny on sustainable investing offerings. So questions like, how are you different from a non-ESG fund? Questions like that will will start they're already being asked, there will be more such questions. Managers would be compared on the robustness of their ESG integration processes. Uh, Investors would be looking at consistency across ESG policies. So we will start to look beyond the ESG and sustainable tags. The Mm -hmm. other trend that I think we briefly chatted about it um, is the is ESG integration now being implemented across newer asset classes. Recently, LSTA, which represents the 1.1 trillion leverage loan market in the U.S., released its first ESG due diligence questionnaire. You know, hedge fund managers are now advancing ESG strategies. KPMG recently, just earlier this year, did a survey on hedge fund managers and their institutional clients in 13 jurisdictions, trying to understand the different approaches that these managers um, are using to integrate ESG. So. I think there will be a lot more strategies, a lot more asset classes and sub-asset classes um, that will start integrating ESG. But mm-hmm. I do want to acknowledge that this practice is is fairly nascent and it's evolving. Um, and you know, at FlatRock, we are keenly following along the emerging best practices and will accordingly continue to update our ESG integration and reporting processes. And in, and in my experience, that is true of most asset managers and asset owners. Learning by doing will remain a very powerful tool of progress. And in terms of where I would like the space to you know, be, I think in about a decade or sooner, ESG investing will just become a standardized practice across asset management. It won't be a standalone initiative anymore. It will firmly be ingrained either in the CIO's office or head of research's office or head of risk's office. And at that point, I will have to find a new vocation. <laughs> can, can, can I ask, um, that's fascinating, and uh, but I, I feel like we'd be remiss not to mention, you know, what's going on in the markets this week. Um, the, um, you know, we're entering uh, unusual times with the, 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 the route we're seeing um, sustained. Um, uh, so what impact do you see uh, that having on ES, the appetite for ESG um, investing? Um, and could the, um, you know, I'm wondering in particular whether the sort of rising awareness of health issues might actually trigger more interest uh, in sustainable investing or, but, but where, you know, will there be money for ESG investing? I'm just, just curious how the, if the ground is shifting, where you see the outlook at, uh, if there's change on the horizon. Right. Um, that's an interesting question. So since the formalization of sustainable investing um, and since evidence collection around ESG and its linkages to financial performance started, um, 
this is the first market downturn. So um, ESG investing is entering uh, untested territories. Um, it would definitely, you know, definitely test investor appetite. Um, however, I would like to highlight that the one of the fundamental premise of ESG investing is that it is a long-term play. Um, it, it evaluates and examines secular forces and company-specific factors to understand a company's long-term risk and a company's um, long-term alpha generation capabilities. So this downturn is, well, there are some fundamental factors in play, but it has mostly been triggered by a global pandemic. So I, I, I hope investors understand that this is in no way a reflection on ESG principles. Um, also, what is interesting is healthcare, yes, but also with the, with the downward spiral in global oil, it will also test investors, corporations, and countries' commitment to, to clean energy um, and commitment to net zero emissions. So I think it's, it's, it's bigger than just investors and, and asset managers. Um, so yeah, so these are all, you know, like I said, this is, this is uncharted territory. I think that, uh, ESG brings in perspective and, you know, gives us, um, a framework to show how strong a company's governance is, how well it is set up to, to handle some of these, uh, unexpected risks. So continuing to integrate ESG um, will remain a sound risk management uh, practice. And um, yeah, so does that does that answer your question? I, I don't want yeah. to make any any grand you know uh, <laughs> predictions about that. This will this will ESG indices will 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 outperform the benchmark indices. That that a, a I don't know if that will happen, and B by making such short term claims. It's kind of doing a disservice to the underlying principle of ESG that which is that do this because it makes sense for long-term risk, risk mitigation and long-term uh, outperformance. Yeah, no, that's interesting that we're in uncharted territories, and uh, you could argue, I would imagine that there could be more, you know, fresh opportunities for, you know, fresh need uh, given the changing landscape. Yes, and also. Right, and also, you know, a lot of analysts who have been, who are still understanding how the ESG data integration into their strategies and into their research work, now they will have the benefit of, you know, a market cycle. So I think, if nothing, this will definitely enrich in the, the research and, and the, you know, the linkages to financial performance studies. Right. Yeah, and it's hard to make predictions in an environment that seems to be changing almost daily. But um, finally, to wrap up our conversation, I wanted to ask you um, about advice because one of the things that you and I spoke about is that the media attention sometimes outweighs the action, the actual action in this space, but there is a tension there. So I wanted to wrap up by asking you what advice would you give to those that are interested in this kind of investing, but they're just starting out? Right. Um, I would say start off by undertaking a peer review. Look at what your fellow investors, uh, be it a family office, be it a pension plan or a peer asset manager, what they have done, what they have done well, 
you know, um, asset managers or of single family offices have been um, very candid about their journey, about their ESG and sustainable investing journeys, lessons learned, challenges along the way. So there is a, there is a lot of literature um, to reference. There are places that you can access resources and learnings on this topic, UNPRI, SASB have some very pertinent case studies from a range of market participants. CFA Society has some interesting papers on this topic. I would also say look at emerging academic literature, um, evidence collection, like I was saying, around ESG linkages to financial performance is a work in progress. And with more time, more data, and now a market downturn, hopefully mm -hmm. not prolonged, under our belt, there will be better understanding of ESG factors and its contribution to risk and growth opportunities. And lastly, media attention is not all bad. I would urge investors to follow some of the mainstream media discourse and debate on ESG and impact investing. The, 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 the more questions are raised, the more uh, resistance there is, the process will be refined and and made more robust. So I think all the media scrutiny is, is actually healthy uh, for the growth of the practice. Great. Yeah. And they can also pay attention to Debtware ABS too. Um, we'll be continuing our, cover our coverage <laughs> yeah. on ESG as well. Um, well, this has been very insightful. Thank you so much, Sheridia, for chatting with us today and helping us try to map out this rapidly growing and evolving space. Thank you so much for having me. Now, switching gears a bit to commercial real estate coverage. Maura, I know it's been a terrible week across markets, but how is the CMBS CRE market holding up? Well, um, it's been a tough week. Um, that's for sure. Um, uh, until uh, this week, um, there was many investors and traders uh, were were careful to point out that the equity uh, disruptions and uh, the, the stock uh, 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 drops um, uh, that, that the CMBS market was outperforming um, the stock market. Um, mm -hmm. um, but that sort of there's no sort of immunity. The, there, there are an increase. You know, uh, there there had been cracks in the uh, facade uh, for some time, but um, uh, Monday morning uh, was pretty uh, was pretty uh, much of a gut gut punch. Um, uh, it started with uh, Morgan Stanley um, issuing a report uh, saying that uh, spreads on the CMBS sector were um, were uh, nearing correction levels, uh, defining correction levels uh, as um, approximately 100 basis point uh, sustained a change uh, on uh, in the in, down in the credit at uh, triple B's and. Um, uh, 50 basis points uh, uh, on the uh, benchmark uh, seniors, um, and um, that. And uh, I mean, I talked to uh, one lender, a CMBS lender, who said uh, Sunday, Monday, it was just like they had uh, pulled uh, the OPEC had pulled the um, the rug out from under uh, the market. Uh, you know, people were just staring at their screens, trying to sort of grasp, uh, as many people are throughout a yeah. variety of markets, what was happening. But um, but there are, uh, you know, uh, there are the, the spreads have blown out uh, somewhat. Um, 
uh, there was so people are looking for price discovery. That's where the, that's they're trying to figure out what things are valued at. Um, at one point, uh, one dealer said early in the week, nobody knows what things are valued at. Um, there was some a sign uh, yesterday that uh, people sort of um, were, were looking for a conduit deal priced uh, C sale. Um, the last cash flows uh, levels seniors uh, they're, they're they're ones that people really look to for as a gauge. Um, they priced um, at 139 um, uh, last week. Um, um, the comparable uh, comparable bonds were pricing uh, to, in two conduits at uh, in the low 90s. Um, so, um, but um, you know, there, it, it could have been worse. Um, and one investor late yesterday to, uh, said to me that um, while that's crazy wide, uh, he does expect them to go wider. Um, um, so I'm not sure where they stand this morning, um, but um, there is still, you know, there's people are trying to figure out what things are worth. On, on the bright side, there is liquidity. Things are trading on the secondary market. Um, there's an uptick in um, do not trades. Uh, in other words, bonds that aren't trading off uh, official lists. However, um, I'm told that things are trading, um, on, you know, in the negotiated private deals because basically you got the bid-ask spread, what people are willing to pay, what people are willing to uh, uh, be paid uh, sort of wide, wider no, as people try to figure out what, what things are worth. Um, so it's taking, you know, it's not automatic, you know, what the price is of something. It's, it used to be, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of uncertainty. Um, but, um, but yeah, there were uh, another sign that things were, you know, um, fairly liquid was that, um, um, a group of banks went to market late last week with a $1.9 billion hotel deal, a casino deal, BX 2020 Viva. That still hasn't priced, um, on Monday, um, talk widened on the top, uh, by about 40 basis points. Um, um, so we'll see where that lands, um, but that's some, and that's being closely watched. Yeah, people are trying to figure out what things are worth. Um, mm -hmm. There's uh, concern around collateral that is hotel, the, the hotel and retail collateral that um, where people are expecting, you know, real uh, a change in uh, values. Uh, um, you know, a little bit more immediate, immediately, uh, um, if we have, if this is all sustained, the, um, um, so that's, those are the sectors that people are partic particularly concerned about. Um, um, and, uh, so, uh, it's, it's been tough, uh, but there are, you know, people are, one person said, uh, you know, he'll take any sign that is encouraging. So there, mm -hmm. you know, there are some encouraging signs, but, um, it, it's been a tough week. Yeah, well, retail, I know, has been a question for a while, and now you just mentioned hotels and hospitality, and as you said, there's a lot of uncertainty, but uh, what collateral sectors are most risky? Those two that we just mentioned, are there others that people are keeping their eye on? Um, it's mostly uh, retail and hotels, uh, mm -hmm. um, um, because, you know, one person described retail as like almost, uh, especially malls, almost like a, a a, a short-term hotel where people go to be entertained and and if there's you know if they're social distancing they're not going to be going there so um uh, you know, so they're sort of tied with uh, if people stay home, they immediately uh, see their revenue fall so that, you know, and they don't have, well, hotels have daily, 
daily revenue flows that can be cut off versus, Mm -hmm. you know, an office building has leases that are, you know, for a year. So, I mean, they can be, um, you know, so that they won't feel the impact, um, uh, you know, when you have a multi-year lease, you don't feel the impact of a change in the economy as quickly um, Mm -hmm. as the hotels and the the retail where every day you got to get people in the doors to, uh, you know, either... Get people in beds or shops. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you mentioned that there is liquidity. So I'm curious, is there a difference emerging between primary and secondary CMBS performance? Um, I think uh, the primary uh, seems to be slowing down. Um, uh, uh, you know, we're not seeing new deals emerging uh as quickly, there's some CRE CLOs that are in the wings, but they have not, um, you know, um, they uh, we're not seeing a flurry, you know, the regular steady flurry of deals announced. Um, so, um, so there is more. It seems to be there's more slowing in the uh, primary and uh, the volume on, uh, on 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 in the secondary seems to be holding up um, re- relatively steady. Um, they're, uh, it's a little harder to track, but that's that's what we're hearing um, mm-hmm. uh, on the secondary that, uh, you know, they're, that, that it's not like you can't, you know, at least I, I haven't, I'm still uh, reporting out what's going on today, but up until yesterday, uh, things were, were trading. Uh, there was, there was, you know, bonds are clearing. Um, but it's a it's a moving market. Um, even large benchmark deals on the secondary say um, the, the there was one uh, that I let's see it priced last week at about ninety five. Uh, I think this week I saw a piece of that bond that uh, trade. Let's see, it was a, on March on Tuesday. I saw a trade after it was bid at one thirty four. Um, today. Um, I see it uh, being talked in the 150s on the secondary market, um, and um, so it's a, it's a you know someone said you know it's like catching a falling knife. It's really hard to say. Uh, things are changing fast. Yeah. Well, you had mentioned um, you know seeing the trading, but are there regular BWIC lists where you're seeing the trading? Um, I am. We we get uh, we get well. Everybody, dealers, traders, banks get these BWICs that people send around of uh, bonds they're they're interested in uh, offering uh, uh, for sale. Um, but um, I, I'm not seeing as much, quite as much color on what's trading and what's not trading. Um, I heard. Uh, from a source yesterday, a dealer saying that that's because a lot of stuff, that's sort of the starting point. The bid lists have become, um, the BWICs, as they call them, have become the starting point for a longer conversation of negotiation to sell something, you know, um, but it's not like, it's uh, no longer uh, a seller's market. It's it's sort of, tr- it's transitioned to a buyer's market and the buyers aren't going to take what uh, that first price is. They're, they're, no, they're haggling, I guess. Um, so, um, and th- that sort of changed. And um, someone said in January, you've put out a bit, uh, a, a, B, a list um, and, you know, essentially said something like people are tripping, we're tripping all over themselves to get it. Now, you know, not, you know, now they're negotiating, you know, cause the, you know, because it's become a buyer's market. Mm-hmm. 
Well, so finally, you mentioned, you know, some of the deals that people were keeping an eye on to see where they priced, but could you give us an idea of what gauges people are watching for telltale signs of CMBS market direction? Yeah. Um, well, so this Viva deal is something that people are closely watching. Um, and on the sidelines, any talk of uh, anybody, uh, you know, needing to... Uh, you know, needing to, uh, you know, sell bonds uh, to, to cover redemptions. But, uh, you know, that's something that people are worried about. But um, so far, I have not heard that that's happening. So that that is good that there are times in the past, volatile times in the past, where, you know, say a hedge fund um, needs to sell in order to give uh, investors money back. But, um, uh, you know, uh, there hasn't been talk of that yet. Um, there's been sort of a sense that people are holding on the sidelines, you know, waiting for stability, um, um, like this Viva deal. You know, someone said uh, they expected uh, the issuer to wait, you know, wait for a couple straight days of stability. Now um, we haven't, we, we're not seeing straight days of stability. Um, um, so we'll see see what happens but um the another thing that another gauge that people watch is dealer levels how much um cnbs people uh banks the big banks the big dealers are holding on their um on their balance sheets of cnbs um so that uh, if that that starts falling then that's a that so shows a shift um if they're trying but um that's just a number that people watch for i I checked that uh, before our call, and um, the, the the Fed doesn't have anything up uh, after February 28th. So, uh, you know, when those numbers come out um, publicly, it'll be interesting to see where, where those go. Okay. Well, we never like to end things on a negative note, but it seems that at least some negativity is almost unavoidable these days. But I would like to thank our guests for joining us today. And for those listening, please stay tuned for our continuous coverage of the capital market. Thank you so much, Maura. Thanks, Larissa. Thanks for listening to ABS In Mind. If you like our show and want to know more, subscribe to Deadwire and follow us on social media. Please like, share, and comment, and join us for our next episode soon.